Welcome back to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm author and host Kevin Hopkins, and this is episode 185. Today, we continue in the first chapter of the book of Romans. In the first episode of this chapter, we we looked at Romans 1, verses 1 to 17, and everything that it says about Paul's mission and purpose in writing to the Romans. And we reminded ourselves that the Roman church was a single Christian congregation. There weren't other Christian churches to which people could run if they didn't like what that church said. There was only one Christian church in a city of a million people and hundreds of pagan temples to the emperor, to different gods and goddesses, both Roman and Greek. Um, and probably gods that we've never heard of. It was a heathen, pagan place. And Paul is writing to this church, this single congregation, about the true nature of what it is to be Christian in a really lost world. So in verse 18 he starts to talk about how the wrath of God is revealed in the culture in which they live, in the culture in which you and I live. So let's start there. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So in this first paragraph, Paul says, look, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness of wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The the disobedience that you see is not the sin. It's the result of the sin. The sin was the suppression of the truth by their wickedness. They are intentionally ignoring and suppressing what they naturally know to be the truth. What is that truth? Well, that there's something bigger than myself in the world. Because what can be known about God is plain. God made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen and could be understood from what has been made. So people are without excuse. You see, when I look at the world around me, I should clearly be able to see I'm not the biggest thing in creation. I didn't create birds and plants and fish and animals and trees and flowers. I didn't create the sun 
or the moon or the stars. I didn't set the times at which they rise and set and appear in the sky. All those questions that God asked of Job, where do you think I hide the snow, Job? Where do I store the rain? Who drew the boundaries for the ocean? All of those questions that God asks Job are those natural law kind of things that I can look into my creation and see I'm part of it, but I had nothing to do with it. I'm not the do-all and the end-all here. So my wants and wishes, my desires, my lusts, my, my hopes, my dreams, they have to be put in proper perspective. And that's not ahead of everything else in creation. I'm not the most important thing here. There's something bigger than me that's more important than me. And when I act out my desires above everyone else and everything else's well-being, when I'm more important than anything or anyone else, I am suppressing the truth and I am denying the nature of my own creation. I am consciously and actively ignoring whatever God there is, right? I mean, we're talking about the lowest level of accountability, that that who God is, that his nature itself should be seen from what he's created, the perfection of the creation around us. And when I ignore that, when I transgress that, when I act in a way that damages the natural order around me. When I take advantage of others, especially in in lust or greed, when I when I harm others out of selfishness and greed, then I am suppressing the truth. I am denying that I'm not the greatest thing in the world. I am, I am sinning, but the sin started with my attitude. My actions are just the result of my attitude that I'm more important than anything else in this world. Verse 21, for although they knew God, or at least they knew that there had to be a God, They neither sought to glorify him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The longer they lived in denial that anything was bigger than them, the more foolish and selfish they became. Although they claimed to be wise, that's the world we live in today, it claims to have great wisdom. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being or birds or animals or reptiles. So then God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. 
They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, because of the sin of ignoring God and choosing to exchange him for stuff and things that they could create themselves. Because their hearts were that wicked, God gave them over to shameful lusts to the point that even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful sexual acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave up on them and turned them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. Wow. Did he not just describe our culture to the finest detail? Well, I got news for you. He also defines first century Rome to the finest detail. Sin hasn't changed. Debauchery hasn't changed. Wickedness hasn't changed. People have not changed. They either seek those things that are higher and greater than themselves, or they refuse them. And when they refuse them, they choose this path of darkness, foolishness, and debauchery. It isn't different now than it was then. But here's the danger. Here's the danger. When we read this, we want to define our culture and point fingers at the people who aren't like us. And that's not what this chapter is for. And you're going to see that very clearly in the next chapter. So you almost have to take the number two away from Romans chapter two and read Romans chapter one and two as an entire unit. Now that makes for an awfully long podcast episode. So we're going to, we're going to split them up here. But in the next episode, I'm going to start with the end of chapter one and read straight into chapter two so that you can see it really is one whole unit. Well, what's the point, Kevin? The point is so that you and I won't point fingers. Because we're not God. It is God who gives them over to sinful desires. It is God who gives them over to sexual impurity. It is God who twice in this first chapter, it says, gave them up. 
it says it in verse 24, and before that it says it in verse, um, I mean, after that, it says it in verse 26. So verse 24 and verse 26, it says twice in three verses, therefore God gave them up. You could just as easily say, God gave up on them. It's the same thing. Now, my Christian doctrine really kind of says that God never gives up on anybody. My Christian doctrine is different from the Bible at this point. Because the Bible says that if somebody intentionally and actively and rebelliously refuses to acknowledge God and refuses to seek God and instead constantly, continually, habitually, insistently seeks their own way and their own aggrandizement and their own satisfaction before anybody else, before anything else, to the, to the detriment of creation, to the detriment of other people of either gender, that at some point, God will give up on them. I don't think he quits. I think he stops. At some point, he stops along the way and says, I'm not going with you further. I'll be here if you come back. But I'm not going with you on this journey. Kevin, is there precedent for this in the Bible? Yes, there is. It's called the story of the prodigal son. Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. It really should be the story of the faithful father. Because this bratty, selfish, little younger son, who really, who really has no right to any inheritance from the father, comes to the father, says, give me what's mine, and I'm leaving. I don't stand an inheritance here. I don't get the cattle or the land or anything else. Give me whatever I've got coming, whatever you're going to give me in your will. Give it to me now, and I'll be on my way. And so in grief, the father gives him and inheritance, cash. And the boy leaves the house. And at that point, a Jewish father would have stood at the doorway and torn his clothes and declared the boy dead and mourned for him and given him over to whatever it was he's going off to pursue because you're not going to change his mind. And at that point, as a parent, you just have to let them go. You can't take that journey with them. You can't helicopter them out of all their problems. You just have to let them pursue their path. It's heartbreaking. And so there stands the father at the doorway, not going on with that child any further. And the kid goes into the far country and he buys his friends and he buys his parties. And as long as he's got money, life is great. And then the money runs out. And when the money runs out, the friends that he bought, well, they're done and they're gone. And then he has no friends and he has no money. And he's in a country where their cultural values aren't his cultural values. And so a Jewish boy has to take a job slopping hogs for a farmer for, for very little pay. And he gets no food except that he can eat the slop that the hogs eat if he's hungry. And one day he wakes up and says, wait a minute. 
The slaves in my father's house eat better than this. I'll go home. I'll fall on my knees before my father and say, Father, I'm not fit to be called your son. Make me a slave. I'll do better at my father's house. And he heads home. And at that moment, he has, in the religious vernacular, he has repented. He is headed back in the right direction. And when he's still a long ways off, the Bible says, the father saw him coming. What does that mean? That means that since that moment, the father stood in the doorway and tore his clothes and declared that son dead. Though he had given him over to his sinful path, the father never stopped watching for him to come home. The father didn't quit on him. He just gave up on trying to change him. But he never quit on him. And while that boy's a long way off, the father sees him and runs to meet him. If he'd seen him 10 miles further away, he would have started running 10 miles sooner. If he'd known the moment that boy left the hog trough, the father would have set out to meet him halfway. Because the father never gave up on him, even though he had to give him over to his desires. That's what Romans chapter 1 is saying, that that when they proved to God that they were not coming back, God gave them up to their own desires. But his hope wasn't that they die out there in their desires and their lusts. His hope wasn't that they'd get sick and perish. His hope was that they'd understand the hopelessness of their way and come back and say, goodness, there has to be something better than this out there. There has to be more to this life than living and dying, more than just trying to make it through the day. And that they would come back looking for what was better. How will they know that there's anything better if there's not a witness for God out amongst the lawlessness and the debauchery? How will they know that there's a better way if there's not a little congregation in the middle of a city of a million people that says, we know the way. Come with us. They wouldn't. They could look at their world and say, there's got to be better than this. And they might, by some stretch of the imagination, come looking for what it was that created everything. But the truth is, they need a witness. And in chapter 2, he's going to say, you're the witness. And if you're pointing fingers and judging, you're guilty of the same sin. Because that's my job. And when you take my job, you're denying that I'm here to do it. Remember, the point of the book of Romans is grace. And in chapter 1, it's hard to see that grace. Because God, the the giver of grace, has given up on these people. He hasn't quit on them, but he's handed them over to their own destruction at their own hands, hoping that somewhere along the tumble to the bottom, they'll say, it's got to get better than this. There's got to be something else. And if when they look for something else, what they see is finger-pointing Christians... 
They're not coming to that. So the first half of the problem is the debauchery. The second half of the problem he's going to show us in chapter 2. Grace can't be seen in the midst of the debauchery and grace can't be seen in the midst of the judgment and he's going to show us the balance. My Christian friends, Romans chapter 1 does not exist for you and I to point fingers at the LGBTQRS bunch. That's not why it's there. And if you use it that way, you are abusing the scripture and you are committing an error that you're going to be really ashamed of reading in the first verses of Romans chapter 2. Why don't you read on a little bit before you go pointing fingers? Does that mean I affirm the debauchery? Absolutely not. Does that mean that I approve of gay marriage and gay relationships and lesbian marriage and people who think they are of multiple spirits? And I say, it's okay. God understands. No, it does not. No. That's not being a witness for Christ either. But it doesn't mean pointing fingers. It doesn't mean telling people that the sin that they're guilty of is the unforgivable sin because it's not any more unforgivable than yours or mine. No. No. Affirmation is not the path of grace. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, but he didn't leave them that way. And he didn't say, oh, the way you're living now is just fine. To the woman at the well, he said, yes, yes, you're telling the truth. You've had five husbands and you're not married to anybody right now. In fact, the man you're living with isn't your husband. He didn't let her off the hook and say, it's okay. Love is love. Live with whomever you please. He didn't condemn her, but he didn't let her off the hook. He said, you know, there's a better way. There's a spirit. And when you worship in spirit and truth, you'll see the light. If you asked me for a drink, I would give you spiritual water so that you wouldn't be driven by these lusts and these thirsts anymore. He did not let her off the hook. He did not approve of her wayward life or her lifestyle choices. He said, look, there's a better way. And if you'd like, I will give it to you. And she says, give me this water. Go and get your husband. I don't have a husband. Well, that's the truth. You've had five and the man you're living with right now isn't your husband. And she runs back to town and she says, oh my goodness, you've got to come meet this guy. He's told me everything I've ever done. And they come back with her because if he knows everything she's ever done, he probably knows everything they've ever done because most of them have done it with her. He doesn't let them off the hook. He confronts them with their lifestyle. He calls a tax collector to his home, Zacchaeus. Come on, I have to eat at your house today. He invites himself to dinner at Zacchaeus' house, actually. And he goes. And he, and he declares redemption on the house of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus repents and says, If I've stolen from anybody, I'll pay him back more than the law requires. It doesn't mean that Zacchaeus ever stole from anybody. In fact, it probably means he didn't. He feels pretty confident this isn't going to cost him everything he's got. But he's willing to make amends. Jesus doesn't leave him where he found him. But he he accepts him right where he found him. 
church. We don't need to affirm. We need to accept. We've taken that step. Now the community wants to say, you've accepted us. Now you have to affirm that we're okay. I can't take that step by the scripture. I can accept you. I can love you. I can tell you that God loves you and accepts you just as you are, but he refuses to leave us like this. He won't accept me and leave me. He won't affirm me when I'm wrong. God will not affirm me if I'm living outside of Scripture, and he won't do that for you either. He'll accept us. He'll love us. But he won't leave us this way. And if we choose this path, He will let us go into our own stupidity, foolishness, and blindness. He'll wait right there until we come back home, damaged and hurt by the choices that we've made. I have had to say to my gay and lesbian friends many times, God will let you take this path, but there is damage and there is hurt and there is harm and there is misery lying ahead if you choose this path. But know this, I love you. And when you are beat up and hurt, I'll still be right here. I will still be here to pray with you, to love you, and to help you heal. I just pray to God you don't die in that misery. And my friends, I've had gay men and lesbian women and bisexual folks And people with all kinds of gender questions come back to me and say, Pastor, you were right. That hurt. I got got abused. I got hurt. I nearly got killed. I don't want that. How How do I find God in the middle of all this? I don't know how else to be. I want you to know that's God's business. But there is grace for you. And I don't know how God will work it out in your life. I don't know what God will do with your sexual identity. That's his business, not mine. I don't know what changes God will ask you to make. I have gay friends who have sworn a life of celibacy because They don't know that God will change them from their same-sex attraction, and I don't either. I have other gay friends who didn't know and trusted God, and God changed them. I don't want to say healed them because I don't know that it was a healing. I just know that it was a change. It was a transformation. And they've, they've entered into a heterosexual life and relationship, and they've had children And God is blessing their marriages and their relationships and their families. And they will tell you that it was a healing. Not my place to tell you that. I have other gay friends who continue to live in same-sex attraction and in celibacy and in purity and holiness because they believe that's what God's asked them to do. It's what we ask of our teenagers. It's what we ask of our heterosexual married people, that they live in fidelity and, and, and truthfulness and faithfulness to God and to each other. I think that's the right path. 
I see God's blessing in that path. I don't see hurt and harm and rejection and isolation and bitterness and anger in that path. But in the next episode, we're going to talk about what I see in the sick church and its bitterness and anger and judgmentalism. It's the same things I see in the sick society. The path in the middle, the path with Jesus, is the path of grace. I can extend grace to the sick church. I can extend grace to the sick society. And I can say to both, God can work this out with you. Your hope lies in grace. I don't know what you're struggling with today. I don't know what your hang-up is. I don't know if you're a finger pointer or one at whom the fingers have always been pointed. doesn't matter. The solution to either side of the road is grace. Right down the middle, grace. I don't know which ditch you're in. It doesn't matter. If you're in the ditch, join us back on the road. Because God will give you the grace to do exactly that. God will call you a son the moment he sees you coming back. God will call you his daughter the moment he knows that your intention is to come back. Then you get absolute grace, total forgiveness, a clean slate, and guidance for the next step. And I just trust God with your future. It's what I'm asking you to do. I just trust God that however he leads you, I can walk with you and we're headed to the same heaven. The end of the road is the same place for both of us. And how God changes us and transforms us on the way, well, that's God's business. And he will do it perfectly in my life, in your life, in everyone else's life who will join us on the road. Because that is grace. That's what he's called me to. That's what he's called you to. Let's walk in grace.